Chapter 21 The longest and most destructive party ever held is now into its fourth generation and still no one shows any signs of leaving. Somebody did once look at his watch, but that was 11 years ago now and there has been no follow-up. The mess is extraordinary and has to be seen to be believed, but if you don't have any particular need to believe it, then don't go and look because you won't enjoy it. There have recently been some bangs and flashes up in the clouds, and there is one theory that this is a battle being fought between the fleets of several rival carpet-cleaning companies who are hovering over the thing like vultures, but you shouldn't believe anything you hear at parties, and particularly not anything you hear at this one. One of the problems, and it's one which is obviously going to get worse, is that all the people at the party are either the children or the grandchildren or the great-grandchildren of the people who wouldn't leave in the first place. Because of all the business about selective breeding and regressive genes and so on, it means that all the people now at the party are either absolutely fanatical party-goers or gibbering idiots, or, more and more frequently, both. Either way, it means that, genetically speaking, each succeeding generation is now less likely to leave than the preceding one. So other factors come into operation, like when the drink is going to run out. Now, because of certain things which have happened which seemed like a good idea at the time, and one of the problems with a party which never stops is that all the things which only seem like a good idea at parties continue to seem like good ideas, that point still seems to be a long way off. One of the things which seemed like a good idea at the time was that the party should fly, not in the normal sense that parties are meant to fly, but literally. One night, long ago, a band of drunken astro-engineers of the first generation clambered round the building, digging this, fixing that, banging very hard on the other, and when the sun rose the following morning, it was startled to find itself shining on a building full of happy drunken people which was now floating like a young and uncertain bird over the treetops. Not only that, but the flying party had also managed to arm itself rather heavily. If they were going to get involved in any petty arguments with wine merchants, they wanted to make sure they had might on their side. The transition from full-time cocktail party to part-time raiding party came with ease, and did much to add that extra bit of zest and swing to the whole affair which was badly needed at this point because of the enormous number of times that the band had already played all the numbers it knew over the years. They looted, they raided, they held whole cities to ransom for fresh supplies of cheese crackers, avocado dip, spare ribs and wine and spirits, which would now get piped aboard from floating tankers. The problem of when the drink is going to run out is, however going to have to be faced one day. The planet over which they are floating is no longer the planet it was when they first started floating over it. The party has attacked and raided an awful lot of it, and no one has ever succeeded in hitting it back because of the erratic and unpredictable way in which it lurches round the sky. It is one hell of a party. It is also one hell of a thing to get hit by in the small of the back. Chapter 22 Arthur lay floundering in pain on a piece of ripped and dismembered reinforced concrete, flicked at by wisps of passing cloud and confused by the sounds of flabby merrymaking somewhere indistinctly behind him. 
There was a sound he couldn't immediately identify, partly because he didn't know the tune I left my leg in Jaglan Beta, and partly because the band playing it were very tired, and some members of it were playing in 3-4 time, some in 4-4, and some in a kind of pie-eyed, pie-r-squared, each according to the amount of sleep he'd managed to grab recently. He lay, panting heavily in the wet air, and tried feeling bits of himself to see where he might be hurt. Wherever he touched himself, he encountered a pain. After a short while, he worked out that this was because it was his hand that was hurting. He seemed to have sprained his wrist. His back, too, was hurting, but he soon satisfied himself that he was not badly hurt, but just bruised and a little shaken, as who wouldn't be? He couldn't understand what a building would be doing flying through the clouds. On the other hand, he would have been a little hard-pressed to come up with any convincing explanation of his own presence, so he decided that he and the building were just going to have to accept each other. He looked up from where he was lying. A wall of pale but stained stone slabs rose up behind him, the building proper. He seemed to be stretched out on some sort of ledge or lip, which extended outwards for about three or four feet all the way around. It was a hunk of the ground in which the party building had had its foundations and which it had taken along with itself to keep itself bound together at the bottom end. Nervously, he stood up and suddenly, looking out over the edge, he felt nauseous with vertigo. He pressed himself back against the wall, wet with mist and sweat. His head was swimming freestyle, but someone in his stomach was doing the butterfly. Even though he had got up here under his own power, he could now not even bear to contemplate the hideous drop in front of him. He was not about to try his luck jumping. He was not about to move an inch closer to the edge. Clutching his hold all, he edged along the wall, hoping to find a doorway in. The solid weight of the can of olive oil was a great reassurance to him. He was edging in the direction of the nearest corner, in the hope that the wall around the corner might offer more in the way of entrances than this one, which offered none. The unsteadiness of the building's flight made him feel sick with fear, and after a short time he took the towel from out of his holdall and did something with it which once again justified its supreme position in the list of useful things to take with you when you hitchhike round the galaxy. He put it over his head so he wouldn't have to see what he was doing. His feet edged along the ground. His outstretched hand edged along the wall. Finally, he came to the corner, and as his hand rounded the corner, it encountered something which gave him such a shock that he nearly fell straight off. It was another hand. The two hands gripped each other. He desperately wanted to use his other hand to pull the towel back from his eyes, but it was holding the holdall with the olive oil, the retsina and the postcards of Santorini, and he very much didn't want to put it down. He experienced one of those self moments. One of those moments when you suddenly turn around and look at yourself and think, who am I? What am I up to? What have I achieved? Am I doing well? He whimpered very slightly. He tried to free his hand, but he couldn't. The other hand was holding his tightly. He had no recourse but to edge onwards towards the corner. He leaned around it and shook his head in an attempt to dislodge the towel. This seemed to provoke a sharp cry of some unfathomable emotion from the owner of the other hand. The towel was whipped from his head and he found his eyes peering into those of Ford Prefect. 
Beyond him stood Slarty Bartfast, and beyond them he could clearly see a porchway and a large closed door. They were both pressed back against the wall, eyes wild with terror as they stared out into the thick blind cloud around them and tried to resist the lurching and swaying of the building. Where the zarking photon have you been? hissed Ford, panic-stricken. Uh, well, stuttered Arthur, not really knowing how to sum it all up that briefly. Here and there, what are you doing here? Ford turned his wild eyes on Arthur again. They won't let us in without a bottle, he hissed. The first thing Arthur noticed as they entered into the thick of the party, apart from the noise, the suffocating heat, the wild profusion of colours that protruded dimly through the atmosphere of heady smoke, the carpets thick with ground glass, ash and avocado droppings, and the small group of pterodactyl-like creatures in Lurex who descended on his cherished bottle of Retsina squawking, A new pleasure! A new pleasure! was Trillian being chatted up by a thunder god. Uh, didn't I see you at the Milliways? he was saying. Were you the one with the hammer? Yes, I much prefer it here. So much less reputable, so much more fraught. Squeals of some hideous pleasure rang around the room, the outer dimensions of which were invisible through the heaving throng of happy, noisy creatures, cheerfully yelling things that nobody could hear at each other and occasionally having crises. Seems fun said Trillian. What did you say, Arthur? I said, how the hell did you get here? I was a row of dots flowing randomly through the universe. Have you met Thor? He makes thunder. Hello, said Arthur. I expect that must be very interesting. Hi, said Thor. It is. Have you got a drink? Uh, no, actually. <laughs> then why don't you go and get one? See you later, Arthur, said Trillian. Something jogged Arthur's mind, and he looked around huntedly. Zaphod isn't here, is he? he said. See you, said Trillian firmly, later. Thor glared at him with hard, coal-black eyes. His beard bristled. What little light there was in the place mustered its forces briefly to glint menacingly off the horns on his helmet. He took Trillian's elbow in his extremely large hand and the muscles in his upper arm moved around each other like a couple of Volkswagens parking. He led her away. One of the uh, interesting things about being immortal, he said, is one of the interesting things about space, Arthur heard Slarty Bartfast saying to a large and voluminous creature who looked like someone losing a fight with a pink duvet and was gazing raptly at the old man's deep eyes and silver beard, is how dull it is. Dull, said the creature, and blinked her rather wrinkled and bloodshot eyes. Yes, said Slarty Bartfast. Staggeringly dull, bewilderingly so. You see, there's so much of it and so little in it. Would you like me to quote you some statistics? Uh, well, please, I would like to. They, too, are quite sensationally dull. I'll come back and hear them in a moment, she said, patted him on the arm, lifted up her skirts like a hovercraft, and moved off into the heaving crowd. I thought she'd never go, growled the old man. Come, Earthman. Arthur. We must find the silver bale. It is here somewhere. Can't we just relax a little, Arthur said. 
I've had a tough day. Trillion's here, incidentally. She didn't say how. It probably doesn't matter. Well, think of the danger to the universe. The universe, said Arthur, is big enough and old enough to look after itself for half an hour. All right, he added in response to Slarty Bartfast's increasing agitation. I'll wander round and see if anybody's seen it. Good, good, said Slarty Bartfast. Good. He plunged into the crowd himself and was told to relax by everybody he passed. Have you seen a bale anywhere? said Arthur to a little man who seemed to be standing eagerly waiting to listen to somebody. It's made of silver, vitally important for the future safety of the universe, and about this long. No, said the enthusiastically wizened little man, but uh, do have a drink and tell me all about it. Ford Prefect writhed past, dancing a wild, frenetic and not entirely unobscene dance with someone who looked as if she was wearing Sydney Opera House on her head. He was yelling a futile conversation at her above the din. I like the hat, he bawled. What? I said I like the hat. I'm not wearing a hat. Well, I like the head then. What? I said I like the head. Interesting bone structure. What? Ford worked a shrug into the complex routine of other movements he was performing. I said, you dance great, he shouted. Just don't nod so much. What? It's just that every time you nod, said Ford, ow, he added as his partner nodded forward to say, what? And once again pecked him sharply on the forehead with the sharp end of her swept forward skull. My planet was blown up one morning, said Arthur, who had found himself quite unexpectedly telling the little man his life story, or at least edited highlights of it. That's why I'm dressed like this, in my dressing gown. My planet was blown up with all my clothes in it, you see. I didn't realise I'd be coming to a party. The little man nodded enthusiastically. Later I was thrown off a spaceship, still in my dressing gown rather than the spacesuit one would normally expect. Shortly after that I discovered... That my planet had originally been built for a bunch of mice. You can imagine how I felt about that. I was then shot at for a while and blown up. In fact, I have been blown up ridiculously often, shot at, insulted, regularly disintegrated, deprived of tea, and recently I crashed into a swamp and had to spend five years in a damp cave. Ah! effervesced the little man. And did you have a wonderful time? Arthur started to choke violently on his drink. What a wonderfully exciting cough, said the little man, quite startled by it. Do you mind if I join you? And with that, he launched into the most extraordinary and spectacular fit of coughing, which caught Arthur so much by surprise that he started to choke violently, discovered he was already doing it, and got thoroughly confused. Together they performed a lung-busting duet, which went on for fully two minutes before Arthur managed to cough and splutter to a halt. So invigorating, said the little man, panting and wiping tears from his eyes. What an exciting life you must lead. Thank you very much. He shook Arthur warmly by the hand and walked off into the crowd. Arthur shook his head in astonishment. A youngish-looking man came up to him, an aggressive-looking type with a hook mouth, a lantern nose and small, beady little cheekbones. 
He was wearing black trousers, a black silk shirt open to what was presumably his navel, though Arthur had learnt never to make assumptions about the anatomies of the sort of people he tended to meet these days, and had all sorts of nasty, dangly gold things hanging round his neck. He carried something in a black bag and clearly wanted people to notice that he didn't want them to notice it. Hey, uh, did I hear you say your name just now? He said. This was one of the many things that Arthur had told the enthusiastic little man. Yes, it's Arthur Dent. The man seemed to be dancing slightly to some rhythm other than any of the several that the band were grimly pushing out. Yeah, he said. Only uh, there was a man in a mountain wanted to see you. I met him. Yeah, only he seemed pretty anxious about it, you know. Yes, I met him. Yeah, well, I think you should know that. I, I do, I met him. The man paused to chew a little gum. Then he clapped Arthur on the back. OK, he said. All right, I'm, I'm just telling you, right? Good night, good luck, win awards. What? said Arthur, who was beginning to flounder seriously at this point. Whatever. Do what you do, do it well. He made a sort of clucking noise with whatever he was chewing and then some vaguely dynamic gesture. Why? said Arthur. We do it badly, said the man. Who cares? Who gives a shit? The blood suddenly seemed to pump angrily into the man's face and he started to shout. Why not go mad, he said. Go away, get off me back, will you, guy? Just zark off. OK, I'm going, said Arthur hurriedly. It's been real. The man gave a sharp wave and disappeared off into the throng. What was that about, said Arthur to a girl he found standing beside him. Why did he tell me to win awards? Just showbiz talk, shrugged the girl. He's just won an award at the annual Ursa Minor Alpha Recreational Illusions Institute awards ceremony and was hoping to be able to pass it off lightly. Only you didn't mention it, so he couldn't. Oh, said Arthur. Oh, well, I'm, I'm sorry I didn't. What was it for? The most gratuitous use of the word fuck in a serious screenplay. It's very prestigious. I see, said Arthur. Yes... And what do you get for that? A Rory. It's just a small silver thing set on a large black base. What did you say? I didn't say anything. I was just about to ask what the silver... Oh, I thought you said WOP. Said what? WOP. People had been dropping in on the party now for some years. Fashionable gatecrashers from other worlds. And for some time, it had occurred to the partygoers as they had looked out at their own world beneath them with its wrecked cities, its ravaged avocado farms and blighted vineyards, its vast tracts of new desert, its seas full of biscuit crumbs and worse, that their world was in some tiny and almost imperceptible ways not quite as much fun as it had been. Some of them had begun to wonder if they could manage to stay sober for long enough to make the entire party space-worthy and maybe take it off to some other people's worlds where the air might be fresher and give them fewer headaches. The few undernourished farmers who still managed to scratch out a feeble existence on the half-dead ground of the planet's surface would have been extremely pleased to hear this, but that day... As the party came screaming out of the clouds and the farmers looked up in haggard fear of yet another cheese and wine raid, it became clear that the party was not going to be going anywhere else for a while, that the party would soon be over. Very soon it would be time to gather up hats and coats and stagger blearily outside 
to find out what time of day it was, what time of year it was, and whether in any of this burnt and ravaged land there was a taxi going anywhere. The party was locked in a horrible embrace with a strange white spaceship which seemed to be half sticking through it. Together they were lurching, heaving and spinning their way round the sky in grotesque disregard of their own weight. The clouds parted, the air roared and leapt out of their way. The party and the cricket warship looked in their writhings a little like two ducks, one of which is trying to make a third duck inside the second duck, whilst the second duck is trying very hard to explain that it doesn't feel ready for a third duck right now, is uncertain that it would want any putative third duck to be made by this particular first duck anyway, and certainly not whilst it, the second duck, was busy flying. The sky sang and screamed with the rage of it all and buffeted the ground with shock waves. And suddenly, with a foop, the cricket ship was gone. The party blundered helplessly across the sky like a man leaning against an unexpectedly open door. It span and wobbled on its hover jets. It tried to right itself and wronged itself instead. It staggered back across the sky again. For a while, these staggerings continued, but clearly they could not continue for long. The party was now a mortally wounded party. All the fun had gone out of it as the occasional broken-backed pirouette could not disguise. The longer at this point that it avoided the ground, the heavier was going to be the crash when finally it hit it. Inside, things were not going well either. They were going monstrously badly, in fact, and people were hating it and saying so loudly. The cricket robots had been... They had removed the award for the most gratuitous use of the word fuck in a serious screenplay and in its place had left the scene of devastation that left Arthur feeling almost as sick as a runner-up for a Rory. "'We would love to stay and help!' shouted Ford, picking his way over the mangled debris. "'Only we're not going to!' The party lurched again, provoking feverish cries and groans from amongst the smoking wreckage. We have to go and save the universe, you see, said Ford. And if that sounds like a pretty lame excuse, then you may be right. Either way, we're off. He suddenly came across an unopened bottle lying miraculously unbroken on the ground. Do you mind if we take this, he said. You won't be needing it. He took a packet of potato crisps too. Trillion, shouted Arthur in a shocked and weakened voice. In the smoking mess he could see nothing. Earthmen, we must go, said Slarty Bartfast nervously. Trillion, shouted Arthur again. A moment or two later, Trillian staggered, shaking into view, supported by her new friend, the Thunder God. The girl stays with me, said Thor. There's a great party going on in Valhalla. We'll be flying off. Where were you when all this was going on, said Arthur. Upstairs said Thor. I was weighing her. Flying's a tricky business, you see. You have to calculate wind. She comes with us, said Arthur. Hey, said Trillian. Don't I... No, said Arthur. You come with us. Thor looked at him with slowly smouldering eyes. He was making some point about godliness, and it had nothing to do with being clean. She comes with me, he said quietly. 
Come on, Earthman, said Slarty Bartfast nervously, picking at Arthur's sleeve. Come on, Slarty Bartfast, said Ford nervously, picking at the old man's sleeve. Slarty Bartfast had the teleport device. The party lurched and swayed, sending everyone reeling, except for Thor and except for Arthur, who stared, shaking, into the Thunder God's black eyes. Slowly, incredibly, Arthur put up what now appeared to be his tiny little fists. Want to make something of it? he said. I beg your minuscule pardon? roared Thor. I said, repeated Arthur, and he could not keep the quavering out of his voice. Do you want to make something of it? He waggled his fists ridiculously. Thor looked at him with incredulity. Then a little wisp of smoke curled upwards from his nostril. There was a tiny little flame in it too. He gripped his belt. He expanded his chest to make it totally clear that here was the sort of man you only dared to cross if you had a team of Sherpas with you. He unhooked the shaft of his hammer from his belt. He held it up in his hands to reveal the massive iron head. He thus cleared up any possible misunderstanding that he might merely have been carrying a telegraph pole around with him. Do I want, he said, with a hiss like a river flowing through a steel mill, to make something of it? Yes, said Arthur, his voice suddenly and extraordinarily strong and belligerent. He waggled his fists again, this time as if he meant it. You want to step outside? he snarled at Thor. All right, bellowed Thor, like an enraged bull, or in fact like an enraged thunder god, which is a great deal more impressive, and did so. Good, said Arthur. That's got rid of him. Slarty, get us out of here. Chapter 23 All right, shouted Thor to Arthur. So I'm a coward. The point is I'm still alive. They were back aboard the starship Bistromath. So was Slarty Bartfast. So was Trillian. Harmony and Concord were not. Well, so am I alive, aren't I? retaliated Arthur, haggard with adventure and anger. His eyebrows were leaping up and down as if they wanted to punch each other. You damn nearly weren't, exploded Ford. Arthur turned sharply to Slarty Bartfast, who was sitting in his pilot couch on the flight deck, gazing thoughtfully into the bottom of a bottle which was telling him something he clearly couldn't fathom. He appealed to him. Do you think he understands the first word I've been saying, he said, quivering with emotion. I don't know, replied Slarty Bartfast, a little abstractedly. I'm not sure, he added, glancing up very briefly, that I do. He stared at his instruments with renewed vigour and bafflement. You'll have to explain it to us again, he said. Well, but later. Terrible things are afoot. He tapped the pseudo-glass of the bottle bottom. We fared rather pathetically at the party, I'm afraid, he said. And our only hope now is to try to prevent the robots from using the key in the lock. How in heaven we do that, I don't know, he muttered. Just... Have to go there, I suppose. Can't say I like the idea at all. Probably end up dead. Where is Trillian, anyway? said Arthur, with a sudden affectation of unconcern. 
What he had been angry about was that Ford had berated him for wasting time over all the business with the Thunder God when they could have been making a rather more rapid escape. Arthur's own opinion, and he had offered it, for whatever anybody might have felt it was worth, was that he had been extraordinarily brave and resourceful. The prevailing view seemed to be that his opinion was not worth a pair of fetid dingo's kidneys. What really hurt, though, was that Trillian didn't seem to react much one way or the other and had wandered off somewhere. "'And where are my potato crisps?' said Ford. "'They are both,' said Slarty Bartfast, without looking up, "'in the room of informational illusions. "'I think that your young lady friend is trying to understand some problems of galactic history. "'I think the potato crisps are probably helping her.'" Chapter 24 It is a mistake to think you can solve any major problems just with potatoes. For instance, there was once an insanely aggressive race of people called the Silastic Armour Fiends of Striterax. That was just the name of their race. The name of their army was something quite horrific. Luckily, they lived even further back in galactic history than anything we have so far encountered, 20 billion years ago, when the galaxy was young and fresh, and every idea worth fighting for was a new one. And fighting was what the Silastic Armour Fiends of Striterax were good at. And being good at it, they did it a lot. They fought their enemies, i.e. everybody else. They fought each other. Their planet was a complete wreck. The surface was littered with abandoned cities which were surrounded by abandoned war machines, which were in turn surrounded by deep bunkers in which the Silastic Armour Fiends lived and squabbled with each other. The best way to pick a fight with a Silastic Armour Fiend of Striterax was just to be born. They didn't like it. They got resentful. And when an Armour Fiend got resentful, someone got hurt. An exhausting way of life, one might think, but they did seem to have an awful lot of energy. The best way of dealing with a Silastic Armour Fiend was to put him in a room on his own, because sooner or later he would simply beat himself up. Eventually they realised that this was something they were going to have to sort out, and they passed a law decreeing that anyone who had to carry a weapon as part of his normal Silastic work – policemen, security guards, primary school teachers, etc. – had to spend at least 45 minutes every day punching a sack of potatoes in order to work off his or her surplus aggression. For a while, this worked well, until someone thought that it would be much more efficient and less time-consuming if they just shot the potatoes instead. This led to a renewed enthusiasm for shooting all sorts of things, and they all got very excited at the prospect of their first major war for weeks. Another achievement of the Silastic Armour Fiends of Striterax is that they were the first race who ever managed to shock a computer. It was a gigantic space-born computer called Haktar, which to this day is remembered as one of the most powerful ever built. It was the first to be built like a natural brain, in that every cellular particle of it carried the pattern of the whole within it, which enabled it to think more flexibly and imaginatively, and also, it seemed, to be shocked. The Silastic Armour Fiends of Striterax were engaged in one of their regular wars with the strenuous Garfighters of Stug. 
and were not enjoying it as much as usual because it involved an awful lot of trekking through the radiation swamps of Qualzenda and across the fire mountains of Frasfraga, neither of which terrains they felt at home in. So, when the strangular stilettons of Jajazikstak joined in the fray and forced them to fight another front at the Gamma Caves of Carfrax and the ice storms of Valenguten, they decided that enough was enough and they ordered Hakdar to design for them an ultimate weapon. What do you mean, asked Hakdar, by ultimate? To which the Silastic armor fiends of Stritorax said, read a bloody dictionary, and plunged back into the fray. So, Hakdar designed an ultimate weapon. It was a very, very small bomb, which was simply a junction box in hyperspace that would, when activated, connect the heart of every major sun with the heart of every other major sun simultaneously, and thus turn the entire universe into one gigantic hyperspatial supernova. When the Silastic armor fiends tried to use it to blow up a strangular stiletton munitions dump in one of the Gamma Caves, they were extremely irritated that it didn't work, and said so. Hakdar had been shocked by the whole idea. He tried to explain that he had been thinking about this ultimate weapon business, and had worked out that there was no conceivable consequence of not setting the bomb off that was worse than the known consequence of setting it off, and he had therefore taken the liberty of introducing a small flaw into the design of the bomb, and he hoped that everyone involved would, on sober reflection, feel that the Silastic armor fiends disagreed and pulverized the computer. Later they thought better of it and destroyed the faulty bomb as well. Then, pausing only to smash the hell out of the strenuous garfighters of Stug and the strangular stilettons of Jajazikstak, they went on to find an entirely new way of blowing themselves up, which was a profound relief to everyone else in the galaxy, particularly the Garfighters, the Stilettons, and the Potatoes. Trillian had watched all this, as well as the story of Cricket. She emerged from the room of informational illusions thoughtfully, just in time to discover that they had arrived too late. Chapter 25 even as the starship Bistromath flickered into objective being, on the top of a small cliff on the mile-wide asteroid which pursued a lonely and eternal path in orbit around the enclosed star system of Cricket, its crew was aware that they were in time only to be witnesses to an unstoppable historic event. They didn't realise they were going to see two. They stood cold, lonely and helpless on the cliff edge and watched the activity below. Lances of light wheeled in sinister arcs against the void from a point only about a hundred yards below and in front of them. They stared into the blinding event. An extension of the ship's field enabled them to stand there by once again exploiting the mind's predisposition to have tricks played on it. The problems of falling up off the tiny mass of the asteroid, or of not being able to breathe, simply became somebody else's. The white cricket warship was parked amongst the stark grey crags of the asteroid, alternately flaring under arc lights or disappearing in shadow. The blackness of the shaped shadows cast by the hard rocks danced together in wild choreography as the arc lights swept round them. The eleven white robots were bearing, in procession, the wicket key, 
out into the middle of a circle of swinging lights. The wicket key was rebuilt. Its components shone and glittered. The steel pillar, or Marvin's leg, of strength and power, the gold bale, or heart of the infinite improbability drive, of prosperity, the perspex pillar, or Argobuthan scepter of justice, of science and reason, the silver bale, or Rory Award for the most gratuitous use of the word fuck in a serious screenplay, and the now reconstituted wooden pillar, or ashes of a burnt stump signifying the death of English cricket, of nature and spirituality. I suppose there is nothing we can do at this point, asked Arthur nervously. And no, sighed Slarty Bartfast. The expression of disappointment which crossed Arthur's face was a complete failure, and since he was standing obscured by shadow, he allowed it to collapse into one of relief. Pity, he said. We have no weapons, said Slarty Bartfast. Stupidly. Damn, said Arthur very quietly. Ford said nothing. Trillian said nothing, but in a peculiarly thoughtful and distinct way. She was staring at that blankness of the space beyond the asteroid. The asteroid circled a dust cloud which surrounded the slow-time envelope, which enclosed the world on which lived the people of Cricket, the masters of Cricket, and their killer robots. The helpless group had no way of knowing whether or not the Cricket robots were aware of their presence, they could only assume that they must be, but that they felt, quite rightly in the circumstances, that they had nothing to fear. They had an historic task to perform, and their audience could be regarded with contempt. Terrible, impotent feeling, isn't it? said Arthur, but the others ignored him. In the centre of the area of light which the robots were approaching, a square-shaped crack appeared in the ground. The crack defined itself more and more distinctly, and soon it became clear that a block of the ground about six feet square was slowly rising. At the same time, they became aware of some other movement, but it was almost subliminal, and for a moment or two, it was not clear what it was that was moving. Then it became clear. The asteroid was moving. It was moving slowly in towards the dust cloud as if being hauled in inexorably by some celestial angler in its depths. They were to make in real life the journey through the cloud which they had already made in the room of informational illusions. They stood frozen in silence. Trillian frowned. An age seemed to pass. Events seemed to pass with spinning slowness, as the leading edge of the asteroid passed into the vague and soft outer perimeter of the cloud. And soon they were engulfed in a thin and dancing obscurity. They passed on through it, on and on, dimly aware of vague shapes and walls indistinguishable in the darkness, except in the corner of the eye. The dust dimmed the shafts of brilliant light. The shafts of brilliant light twinkled on the myriad specks of dust, Trillian, again, regarded the passage from within her own frowning thoughts. And they were through it. Whether it had taken a minute or half an hour, they weren't sure. But they were through it and confronted with a fresh blankness, as if space were pinched out of existence in front of them. And now things moved quickly. 
A blinding shaft of light seemed almost to explode from out of the block which had risen three feet out of the ground, and out of that rose a smaller perspex block, dazzling with interior dancing colours. The block was slotted with deep grooves, three upright and two across, clearly designed to accept the wicket key. The robots approached the lock, slotted the key into its home and stepped back again. The block twisted round of its own accord and space began to alter. As space unpinched itself, it seemed agonisingly to twist the eyes of the watchers in their sockets. They found themselves staring, blinded at an unravelled sun which stood now before them where it seemed only seconds before there had not been even empty space. It was a second or two before they were even sufficiently aware of what had happened to throw their hands up over their horrified, blinded eyes. In that second or two, they were aware of a tiny speck moving slowly across the eye of that sun. They staggered back and heard ringing in their ears the thin and unexpected chant of the robots crying out in unison, Cricket! 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 The sound chilled them. It was harsh. It was cold. It was empty. It was mechanically dismal. It was also triumphant. They were so stunned by these two sensory shocks that they almost missed the second historic event. Zaphod Beeblebrox, the only man in history to survive a direct blast attack from the cricket robots, ran out of the cricket warship brandishing a zap gun. OK! he cried. The situation is totally under control as of this moment in time. The single robot guarding the hatchway to the ship silently swung his battle club and connected it with the back of Zaphod's left head. Who the Zark did that? said the left head and lolled sickeningly forward. His right head gazed keenly into the middle distance. Who did what? it said. The club connected with the back of his right head. Zaphod measured his length as a rather strange shape on the ground. Within a matter of seconds, the whole event was over. A few blasts from the robots were sufficient to destroy the lock forever. It split and melted and splayed its contents brokenly. The robots marched grimly and, it almost seemed, in a slightly disheartened manner, back into their warship which, with a foop, was gone. Trillian and Ford ran hectically round and down the steep incline to the dark, still body of Zaphod Beeblebrox. Chapter 26 I don't know, said Zaphod, for what seemed to him like the 37th time. They could have killed me, but they didn't. Maybe they just thought I was a kind of wonderful guy or something. I could understand that. The others silently registered their opinions of this theory. Zaphod lay on the cold floor of the flight deck. His back seemed to wrestle the floor as pain thudded through him and banged at his heads. I think, he whispered, that there is something wrong with those anodized dudes, something fundamentally weird. They are programmed to kill everybody, Slarty Bartfast pointed out. That wheezed Zaphods between the whacking thuds, could be it. He didn't seem altogether convinced. Hey, baby, he said to Trillian, hoping this would make up for his previous behaviour. You all right? she said gently. Yeah, he said. I'm fine. 
Good, she said, and walked away to think. She stared at the huge visiscreen over the eight couches and, twisting a switch, she flipped local images over it. One image was the blankness of the dust cloud. One was the son of Cricket. One was Cricket itself. She flipped between them fiercely. Well, that's goodbye galaxy then, said Arthur, slapping his knees and standing up. No, said Slarty Bartfast gravely. Our course is clear. He furrowed his brow until you could grow some of the smaller root vegetables in it. He stood up. He paced around. When he spoke again, what he said frightened him so much he had to sit down again. We must go down to cricket, he said. A deep sigh shook his old frame and his eyes seemed almost to rattle in their sockets. Once again, he said, we have failed pathetically. Quite pathetically. That, said Ford quietly, is because we don't care enough, I told you. He swung his feet up onto the instrument panel and picked fitfully at something on one of his fingernails. But unless we determine to take action, said the old man querulously, as if struggling against something deeply insouciant in his nature, then we shall all be destroyed, we shall all die. Surely we care about that. Not enough to want to get killed over it, said Ford. He put on a sort of hollow smile and flipped it round the room at anyone who wanted to see it. Slarty Bartfast clearly found this point of view extremely seductive, and he fought against it. He turned again to Zaphod, who was gritting his teeth and sweating with the pain. "'You surely must have some idea,' he said, "'of why they spared your life. "'It seems most strange and unusual.' "'I kind of think they didn't even know,' shrugged Zaphod. "'I told you, they hit me with the most feeble blast, "'just knocked me out, right? "'They lugged me into their ship, dumped me in a corner, "'and ignored me like they were embarrassed about me being there.' If I said anything, they knocked me out again. We had some great conversations. Hey, uh, hi there, uh, I wonder, uh, kept me amused for hours, you know. He winced again. He was toying with something in his fingers. He held it up. It was the gold bale, the heart of gold, the heart of the infinite improbability drive. Only that and the wooden pillar had survived the destruction of the lock intact. I hear your ship can move a bit, he said. So, how would you like to zip me back the mine before you... Will you not help us, said Slarty Bartfast. Us, said Ford sharply. Who's us? I'd love to stay and help you save the galaxy, insisted Zaphod, raising himself up onto his shoulders. But I have the mother and father of a pair of headaches, and I feel a, a lot of little headaches coming on. But next time it needs saving, I'm your guy. Hey! Trillion, baby. She looked round briefly. Yes. You want to come? Heart of gold? Excitement and adventure and really wild things? I'm going down to cricket, she said. Chapter 27 It was the same hill and yet not the same. This time it was not an informational illusion. This was cricket itself and they were standing on it. Near them... Behind the trees stood the strange Italian restaurant which had brought these, their real bodies, to this, the real, present world of cricket. The strong grass under their feet was real. The rich soil real, too. 
The heady fragrances from the tree, too, were real. The night was real night. Cricket. Possibly the most dangerous place in the galaxy for anyone who isn't a cricketer to stand. The place that could not countenance the existence of any other place, whose charming, delightful, intelligent inhabitants would howl with fear, savagery and murderous hate when confronted with anyone not their own. Arthur shuddered. Slarty Bartfast shuddered. Ford, surprisingly, shuddered. It was not surprising that he shuddered, it was surprising that he was there at all. But when they had returned Zaphod to his ship, Ford had felt unexpectedly shamed into not running away. Wrong, he thought to himself, wrong, wrong, wrong. He hugged to himself one of the zap guns with which they had armed themselves out of Zaphod's armoury. Trillian shuddered and frowned as she looked into the sky. This too was not the same. It was no longer blank and empty. Whilst the countryside around them had changed little in the two thousand years of the cricket wars and the mere five years that had elapsed locally since cricket was sealed in its slow-time envelope ten billion years ago, the sky was dramatically different. Dim lights and heavy shapes hung in it. High in the sky, where no cricketer ever looked, were the war zones, the robot zones, Huge warships and tower blocks floating in the Nilograv fields far above the idyllic pastoral lands of the surface of cricket. Trillian stared at them and thought. Trillian, whispered Ford Prefect to her. Yes, she said. What are you doing? Thinking. Do you always breathe like that when you're thinking? I wasn't aware that I was breathing. That's what worried me. I think I know, said Trillian. Shh, said Slarty Bartfast in alarm, and his thin, trembling hand motioned them further back beneath the shadow of the tree. Suddenly, as before in the tape, there were lights coming along the hill path, but this time the dancing beams were not from lanterns, but electric torches. Not in itself a dramatic change, but every detail made their hearts thump with fear. This time... There were no lilting, whimsical songs about flowers and farming and dead dogs, but hushed voices in urgent debate. A light moved in the sky with slow weight. Arthur was clenched with a claustrophobic terror and the warm wind caught at his throat. Within seconds, a second party became visible, approaching from the other side of the dark hill. They were moving swiftly and purposefully, their torches swinging and probing around them. The parties were clearly converging, and not merely with each other. They were converging deliberately on the spot where Arthur and the others were standing. Arthur heard the slight rustle as Ford Prefect raised his zap gun to his shoulder, and the slight whimpering cough as Slarty Bartfast raised his. He felt the cold, unfamiliar weight of his own gun, and with shaking hands, he raised it. His fingers fumbled to release the safety catch and engage the extreme danger catch as Ford had shown him. He was shaking so much that if he'd fired at anybody at that moment, he would probably have burned his signature on them. Only Trillian didn't raise her gun. She raised her eyebrows, lowered them again, and bit her lip in thought. Has it occurred to you, she began, but nobody wanted to discuss anything much at the moment. A light stabbed through the darkness from behind them, and they span around to find a third party of cricketers behind them, 
searching them out with their torches. Ford Prefect's gun crackled viciously, but fire spat back at it and it crashed from his hands. There was a moment of pure fear, a frozen second before anyone fired again. And at the end of that second, nobody fired. They were surrounded by pale-faced cricketers and bathed in bobbing torchlight. The captives stared at their captors. The captors stared at their captives. Hello, said one of the captors. Excuse me, but are you... aliens? Chapter 28 Meanwhile, more millions of miles away than the mine can comfortably encompass, Zaphod Beeblebrox was throwing a mood again. He had repaired his ship, that is, he had watched with alert interest whilst a service robot had repaired it for him. It was now, once again, one of the most powerful and extraordinary ships in existence. He could go anywhere, do anything. He fiddled with a book and then tossed it away. It was the one he'd read before. He walked over to the communications and opened an all-frequency channel. Anyone want a drink? he said. This is an emergency, fella, crackled a voice from halfway across the galaxy. Got any mixers? said Zaphod. Oh, go take a ride on a comet. OK, OK, said Zaphod, and flipped the channel shut again. He sighed and sat down. He got up again and wandered over to a computer screen. He pushed a few buttons. Little blobs started to rush around the screen, eating each other. Pow, said Zaphod. Free cool, pop, pop, pop. Hi there, said the computer brightly after a minute of this. You have scored three points. Previous best score, 7,597,200... OK, OK, said Zaphod and flipped the screen back again. He sat down again. He played with a pencil. This, too, began slowly to lose its fascination. OK, OK, he said, and fed his score and the previous best one into the computer. His ship made a blur of the universe. Chapter 29 Tell us, said the thin, pale-faced cricketer who had stepped forward from the ranks of the others and stood uncertainly in the circle of torchlight, handling his gun as if he were just holding it for someone else who just popped off somewhere but would be back in a minute. Do you know anything about something called the balance of nature? There was no reply from their captives, or at least nothing more articulate than a few confused mumbles and grunts. The torchlight continued to play over them. High in the sky above them, dark activity continued in the robot zones. It's just, continued the cricketer uneasily, something we heard about, probably nothing important. Well, I suppose we'd better kill you then. He looked down at his gun as if he was trying to find which bit to press. That is, he said, looking up again, unless there's anything you want to chat about. Slow, numb astonishment crept up the bodies of Slarty Bartfast, Ford and Arthur. Very soon it would reach their brains, which were, at the moment, solely occupied with moving their jawbones up and down. Trillian was shaking her head as if trying to finish a jigsaw by shaking the box. We're worried, you see said another man from the crowd, about this plan of universal destruction. Yes, 
added another. And the balance of nature, it just seemed to us that if the whole of the rest of the universe is destroyed, it will somehow upset the balance of nature. We're quite keen on ecology, you see. His voice trailed away unhappily. And sport, said another loudly. This got a cheer of approval from the others. Yes, agreed the first. And sport. He looked back at his fellows uneasily and scratched fitfully at his cheek. He seemed to be wrestling with some deep inner confusion, as if everything he wanted to say and everything he thought were entirely different things, between which he could see no possible connection. You see, he mumbled, some of us, and he looked around again as if for confirmation. The others made encouraging noises. Some of us, he continued, are quite keen to have sporting links with the rest of the galaxy, and though I can see the argument about keeping sport out of politics, I think that if we want to have sporting links with the rest of the galaxy, which we do, then it's probably a mistake to destroy it. And indeed, the rest of the universe. His voice trailed away again, which is what seems... To be the idea now. What? said Slarty Bartfast. What? Huh? said Arthur. Dr said Ford Prefect. Okay, said Trillian. Let's talk about it. She walked forward and took the poor, confused cricketer by the arm. He looked about twenty-five, which meant, because of the peculiar manglings of time that had been going on in this area, that he would have been just twenty when the cricket wars were finished, ten billion years ago. Trillian led him for a short walk through the torchlight before she said anything more. He stumbled uncertainly after her. The encircling torch beams were drooping now slightly as if they were abdicating to this strange quiet girl who alone in this universe of dark confusion seemed to know what she was doing. She turned and faced him, and lightly held both his arms. He was a picture of bewildered misery. Tell me, she said. He said nothing for a moment whilst his gaze darted from one of her eyes to the other. We, he said, we have to be alone, I think. He screwed up his face and then dropped his head forward, shaking it like someone trying to shake a coin out of a money box. He looked up again. We have this bomb now, you see, he said. It's just a little one. I know, she said. He goggled at her as if she had said something very strange about beetroots. Honestly, he said, it's very, very little. I know, she said again. But they say, his voice trailed on, they say it can destroy everything that exists, and we have to do that, you see, I think. Will that make us alone? I don't know. It seems to be our function, though, he said, and dropped his head again. Whatever that means, said a hollow voice from the crowd. Trillian slowly put her arms around the poor, bewildered young cricketer and patted his trembling head on her shoulder. It's all right, she said quietly, but clearly enough for all the shadowy crowd to hear. You don't have to do it. She rocked him. You don't have to do it, she said again. She let him go and stood back. I want you to do something for me, she said, and unexpectedly laughed. 
I want, she said, and laughed again. She put her hand over her mouth and then said with a straight face, I want you to take me to your leader. And she pointed into the war zones in the sky. She seemed somehow to know that their leader would be there. Her laughter seemed to discharge something in the atmosphere. From somewhere at the back of the crowd, a single voice started to sing a tune which would have enabled Paul McCartney, had he written it, to buy the world. Chapter 30 Zaphod Beeblebrox crawled bravely along a tunnel, like the hell of a guy he was. He was very confused, but continued crawling doggedly anyway because he was that brave. He was confused by something he had just seen, but not half as confused as he was going to be by something he was about to hear, so it would now be best to explain exactly where he was. He was in the robot war zones many miles above the surface of the planet Cricket. The atmosphere was thin here and relatively unprotected from any rays or anything which space might care to hurl in this direction. He had parked the starship Heart of Gold amongst the huge, jostling, dim hulks that crowded the sky here above Cricket, and had entered what appeared to be the biggest and most important of the sky buildings, armed with nothing but a zap gun and something for his headaches. He had found himself in a long, wide and badly lit corridor in which he was able to hide until he worked out what he was going to do next. He hid because every now and then one of the cricket robots would walk along it, and although he had so far led some kind of charmed life at their hands, it had, nevertheless, been an extremely painful one, and he had no desire to stretch what he was only half inclined to call his good fortune. He had ducked at one point into a room leading off the corridor and had discovered it to be a huge and again dimly lit chamber. In fact, it was a museum with just one exhibit, the wreckage of a spacecraft. It was terribly burnt and mangled and, now that he had caught up with some of the galactic history he had missed through his failed attempts to have sex with the girl in the cyber cubicle next to him at school, he was able to put in an intelligent guess that this was the wrecked spaceship which had drifted through the dust cloud all those billions of years ago and started this whole business off. But, and this is where he had become confused, there was something not at all right about it. It was genuinely wrecked, it was genuinely burnt, but a fairly brief inspection by an experienced eye revealed that it was not a genuine spacecraft. It was as if it was a full-scale model of one, a solid blueprint. In other words, it was a very useful thing to have around if you suddenly decided to build a spaceship yourself and didn't know how to do it. It was not, however, anything that would ever fly anywhere itself. He was still puzzling over this, in fact he'd only just started to puzzle over it, when he became aware that a door had slid open in another part of the chamber and another couple of cricket robots had entered looking a little glum. Zaphod did not want to tangle with them, and deciding that just as discretion was the better part of valour, so was cowardice the better part of discretion, he valiantly hid himself in a cupboard. The cupboard, in fact, turned out to be the top part of a shaft which led down through an inspection hatch into a wide ventilation tunnel. He let himself down into it and started to crawl along it, which is where we found him. He didn't like it. It was cold, dark and profoundly uncomfortable, and it frightened him. At the first opportunity, which was another shaft a hundred yards further along, 
he climbed back up out of it. This time he emerged into a smaller chamber which appeared to be a computer intelligence centre. He emerged in a dark narrow space between a large computer bank and the wall. He quickly learned that he was not alone in the chamber and started to leave again when he began to listen with interest to what the other occupants were saying. It's the robots, sir, said one voice. There's something wrong with them. What, exactly? These were the voices of two War Command cricketers. All the War Commanders lived up in the sky in the robot war zones and were largely immune to the whimsical doubts and uncertainties which were afflicting their fellows down on the surface of the planet. Well, sir, I think it's just as well that they're being phased out of the war effort and that we are now going to detonate the supernova bomb. In the very short time since we were released from the envelope, get to the point. The robots aren't enjoying it, sir. What? The war, sir. It seems to be getting them down. There's a certain world weariness about them, or perhaps I should say universe weariness. Well, that's all right. They're meant to be helping to destroy it. Yes, well, they're finding it difficult, sir. They are afflicted with a certain lassitude. They're just finding it hard to get behind the job. They lack oomph. What are you trying to say? Well, I think they're very depressed about something, sir. What on cricket are you talking about? Well, in the few skirmishes they've had recently, it seems that they go into battle, raise their weapons to fire, and suddenly think, why bother? What, cosmically speaking, is it all about? And they just seem to get a little tired and a little grim. And then what do they do? Um, quadratic equations, mostly, sir, fiendishly difficult ones, by all accounts, and then they sulk. Sulk? Yes, sir. Who ever heard of a robot sulking? Well, I don't know, sir. What was that noise? It was the noise of Zaphod leaving with his head spinning. 